You just listened to the first televised political advertisement aired on behalf of a presidential candidate. The cartoon ad for retired General Dwight Ike Eisenhower was created in 1952 by a Disney employee. It was part of a campaign designed by the advertising agency BBDO and paid for by Citizens for Eisenhower, an independent group run by lawyer and New York politician Herbert Brownell. I Like Ike was a one-minute spot distributed in the campaign's last two weeks and intended to create excitement around Eisenhower's Republican candidacy. It featured Uncle Sam leading a parade of homemakers, pipe fitters, cowboys, and other ordinary working Americans who marched past several doleful Democratic donkeys to the beat of a cheerful elephant banging a drum with its tail. The ad ends with the sun rising over the Capitol Dome, and it reads Ike in a typeface that to contemporary eyes almost reads like the furniture store Ikea. But the spot spoke to a society of men in gray flannel suits. I like Ike because, because, well, because everybody likes Ike. Democrat Adlai Stevenson, who lost to Eisenhower in 1952, would try to replicate this magic in 1956 by rhyming madly and Adley, which worked less well. Voters across party lines flocked to Eisenhower in that rematch, too. But what you will notice about I Like Ike, if you watch it, other than its upbeat tune and constant repetition of like and Ike, is that all the human cartoon characters are white. In at least 13 states, black Americans voted in tiny numbers because state laws had created an elaborate set of barriers, often in majority black counties, to prevent them from wielding political power. In 1952, black Southerners were also subject to Jim Crow, formal and informal practices that relegated most African Americans to inferior schools, prevented them from accessing public accommodations, put children to work at an early age, and required complete deference to whites. These laws and social mandates were enforced by violence, beatings, imprisonment, forced labor, and lynching. In the former Confederacy, these values were the values of state Democratic parties, if not the National Democratic Party, and Democrats ran those states with an iron fist. So the ad sought to reassure white Americans everywhere that their values were Ike's values too. And I Like Ike had a seismic effect in a South where civil rights activists were already mobilizing against racist violence and official bigotry. Eisenhower not only took 39 states, he captured the Democratic strongholds of Virginia, Florida, Texas, and Tennessee. In 1956, he added Louisiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Eisenhower's political affability, his sheer blandness, often concealed and distracted from profound political dissent in the United States. For decades, the 1950s was imagined in popular culture as an age of innocence and a site for white nostalgia. Dozens of books have declared the age of Eisenhower to be a decade of conformity and consensus, of poodle skirts and the birth of rock and roll, high wages, home ownership, and college enrollments that boosted white working Americans into the middle class. This collides uncomfortably with parallel histories of those years. The 1950s was a time of political repression led by anti-communists in Washington and state houses across the country. Students and progressives were already mobilizing to end nuclear proliferation. 
gays and lesbians were beginning to organize publicly. And most importantly, a mass movement of African Americans was mobilizing to end Jim Crow. As Eisenhower was still waffling on whether to run in April 1951, after all, he had never registered with a political party or even voted because he had spent his whole adult life in the military, black activists had begun to launch civil disobedience campaigns to support existing National Association of Colored People lawsuits. Students in Prince Edward County, Virginia, launched a student strike to protest the conditions in their school. In 1952, that suit would be wrapped into Brown v. Board of Education. The Supreme Court decided Brown in favor of the plaintiffs in 1954, ordering that the nation's schools be desegregated. That decision launched what was called massive resistance. White Southerners determined to defend segregation and white supremacy by any means necessary. But as we know from prior episodes of this podcast, some white Southerners saw the world of privilege and violence they lived in and recoiled from it. One of them was Catherine Drew Gilpin, the daughter of two old Virginia families. Born in 1947, her youth unfolded during the phase of civil rights activism and massive resistance inaugurated by Brown. Increasingly, she looked at the world surrounding her beautiful Shenandoah Valley family home and understood that the world that expected her to uphold its values and take her place as a well-behaved young lady was wrong. As she grew up, she joined the ranks of Southern white women who have fought to make the United States a more democratic and just nation. We now know this woman as Drew Gilpin Faust, a prize-winning historian of the United States South and the first woman president of Harvard University. And now she's the author of a new memoir, Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century, out this month from Macmillan Publishers. In it, she recounts how she came to consciousness as a person who not just cared about social justice, but also did something about it. Join Drew and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 35, No Age of Innocence. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Claire. So this memoir, Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century, is about a girl who is you, who grows up in the South and realizes there's something wrong with her world. Could you tell our listeners how she gets from that realization to becoming the Drew Faust that walks out of Bryn Mawr College and into her career as a historian? I believe that I evolved as I did in kind of opposition to my childhood background because I was the only girl in a family of four children. And from the time I was a very small child, I was asked to do things that were commensurate with being a lady in the 1950s South that I just would have none of. And they ranged from itchy, lacy clothing 
to being told that I couldn't do things my brothers were doing. And this seemed enormously unfair to me. And I objected to not being treated equitably. But when I looked around myself, I saw that there were circumstances that were much more unfair than what I was being subjected to. And that was the whole edifice of race and segregation in which I grew up. So I wanted to fight back for my own survival, but I also was moved to fight for what seemed to me the principles that I had been taught in school and in church, which is you treat people with dignity and equity, and this is America of the Declaration of Independence, and this is Christianity. My family was not overly religious, but went to church every Sunday. And I did not find the principles that I was being taught in those two venues consistent with how the world around me operated. And so I fought back from a pretty early age. This is Virginia in the Upper South. And if our listeners don't understand what that means, Virginia is not a place where racism is taking the form of extreme overt violence as it is in Alabama and Mississippi. And yet there's a certain violence to it all the same. And can you talk about Jim Crow in Virginia as you were growing up? What did it look like? What did it feel like? There was a notion of the Virginia way. That's a phrase from Douglas Southall Freeman, who was a Richmonder newspaper editor, biographer of Robert E. Lee. And his conception of race relations was definitely one of white superiority and black inferiority, but he thought there shouldn't be violence, that this should be maintained through a form of, as he saw it, consent on the part of African-Americans who would see that it was in their best interest not to object to a white supremacy that was not violent, but rather in Douglas Southall Freeman's view, delivered certain benefits to black people. So there was not a desire to make Jim Crow visible in quite the same way as in much of the rest of the South. Though as you move south in Virginia, it got more and more like the rest of the deeper South. But where I grew up, there were not signs that said white and colored over water fountains. There were not overt prohibitions. It was understood The rules were more or less internalized. There was, for example, in my own household, a bathroom that was used only by the African-American workers in the house, the cooks and cleaners. And it was just understood that we were not to use that bathroom, but it was explained to us as this is respectful of them to have their own space. But my mother reprimanded me once when I used that bathroom. So I learned the byways of, of race relations through those kinds of gestures and comments. But I was always told to use dignified language and respectful language, though I called adult Black people by their first names. The N-word, I never heard the N-word as a child. So that was another element that perhaps was different from much of the Deep South. So there was this kind of gentility that was supposed to surround racial oppression and racial hierarchy in the Virginia in which I grew up. But that was kind of blown out of the water a bit by Brown v. Board, where suddenly overt discussion of race came onto the screen because Brown v. Board mandated integration of schools and local Virginia leaders and and state leaders, including our own Senator Harry Byrd, who lived not far from us in the part of the Shenandoah Valley where, where I grew up, they demanded massive resistance to school integration, close the schools rather than integrate them. 
language about miscegenation, fear of interracial mixing, all kinds of conversation that just had been suppressed in Virginia in large measure up until that moment of what was seen by the white Virginians as a moment of crisis. Now, Brown v. Board of Education is 1954. How old are you then? Well, I was born in 1947. So depending on what part of the year you want to talk about, that's when I think I should make clear that there was violence in Virginia. There were lynchings in Virginia. There were none in my county, but there was one in Frederick County next to mine. It was a much smaller number than in the Deep South, but nevertheless, this kind of violence was there in reserve if whites felt they needed to make use of it. And there was also, for example, a big conflict in Virginia right after the Civil War about the use of the whipping post. This is among freed African-Americans, would they be publicly whipped as they would have been under slavery for violations of law or alleged violations of law? So there was always violence in reserve, sometimes used, but used far less frequently than in the Deep South. Yeah, that's really important. Thank you. And also, there is a kind of violence implicit in saying, all right, we're not going to integrate our schools. We just won't let Black children go to school at all. Yes. Um, and, and of course, Brown v. Board of Education sees across the South the creation of so-called segregation academies in which white people can continue to choose a segregated education yes. for their children. Yes. And many of those persist to this day. And most of them, or at least a great many of them, have very small percentages of Black students, like in yeah. the 1% and 2% level. So a lingering reality from the time of my childhood. No, I remember that when I went to Yale and I would sort of look in the in the Facebook and see where people had gone to school. And then you would say the school was founded in 1957 or 1958. Mm-hmm. My school was founded at the end of the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that triggered something for me. So you begin the book, however, with your mother's death, which is a trauma for any child, but your mother plays a role in your struggle against gender discrimination. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role she played? My mother died at the age of 48, and it was clear to all of her children, maybe not to my youngest brother, who was only 10 when she died, but to her other three children, that she was a very unhappy person and that Her life was one of frustration and lack of fulfillment. She was a wife and a mother. That was the role she had. That was the role of all the mothers in our social set. People did not work outside the home. There were very strong views about what the constraints on women's opportunities and domains should be. And I recognized that that was very damaging to my mother and contributed, I believe, to the illness she developed and to what I describe as her essential disappearance as she became so thin that she almost never existed at all or didn't any longer exist. So part of my mother's role was as a counter role model, but she also was in her own way a fierce person, which made her limited domain seem even more discordant. And she had very strong ideas about what I should be, much more so than for my brothers. And so we were in constant conflict about whatever idea she had about what was important for me to do or not do. And these were mostly things to do with 
what's appropriate for a girl rather than my politics. I think my politics as they emerged when I became a teenager were of less concern to her. When I said I wanted to go off, this is when I was a junior in high school, I wanted to go off on a Quaker trip to Eastern Europe with an integrated group. This had, I'd never been around Black people who were meant to be part of a endeavor together with me. It had always been people who worked for my family. So that was groundbreaking. Going to communist Eastern Europe and going through Checkpoint Charlie, that was pretty groundbreaking. She was less concerned about all that than she was about what adults are going to be on this trip and how are you going to be chaperoned? So it was a world in which her interventions were always, am I protected? Is my reputation protected? And is my actual physical female safety protected? And do I appear appropriately for a young woman? And so those were the kinds of fights because I didn't care how I appeared or whether it was appropriate or not. I wanted to wear jeans to dinner. She started telling me I had to wear a dress to dinner when I was in seventh grade. This seemed ridiculous to me. So I, I had a 4-H club steer at that time. And I just said, well, I'm going to stay in the barn with my steer and not come to dinner at all. So we had little protest actions throughout my childhood and adolescence until I went away to school and could just live my own life and basically not tell her about it. Which is how a lot of women escape, mothers who are trying to suppress who they really are. And you go north to school. You go to Boston, and it's a women's school. What did you learn there? I loved that school, and it liberated me from a world in which little was expected intellectually of girls. And the fact that I was a really good student was more a disappointment to my family in some ways than the fact that it was something to celebrate. My mother, I overheard her once saying to a friend that she wished my older brother had the intellectual gifts that I seem to have, and it would be more appropriate for him to have those gifts. So suddenly there I am in boarding school in Concord, Massachusetts. And one might say this was a haven of blue stocking thinking of a belief in women's intellectual capacities and a presence of a lot of strong women on the faculty and in the leadership of the place. The head of the school was a remarkable person named Elizabeth Hall, who was daunted by nothing. She would drive a tractor around the campus if a tractor was needed. She dismantled a, with friends, not all by herself with other faculty members, but took apart a meeting house in New Hampshire, board by board, and then reassembled it. And she had a hammer and nails that she used. She wasn't just sitting there telling other people what to do. She was up on a ladder doing this herself. (laughs) So she had uh, many traits that I had not previously attributed to women. She was also a marvelous speaker, and she spoke to us on regular occasions you know, once a week almost, all year, about various moral and structural issues facing us in our lives. And we hung on her every word. Now, interestingly, as I look back and read her speeches and thought about what her influence had meant to me, the things she said actually were much more conventional than what she did and what she was. And when she talked about women's roles, She'd talk about how we would end up being deferential to our husbands and our lives would be meant to support our husbands and it would be the rare woman who had a career in independent 
contribution that didn't come through her husband. So this all sounded like something rather out of the 19th century, but it nevertheless did not come across as strongly as who she was in her own self and her ability to transmit to us a model of strength and independence that I think rested very positively in all our minds. That was a real change for me to get into that kind of world. Yeah. And that paradox about what is what does it mean to be an educated woman mm-hmm. actually persists through the 60s and into the 70s. I went to the Baldwin School, which was across the street from Bryn Mawr, which is where mm-hmm. you end up. And they were constantly talking about marriage and motherhood. At the same time, we were getting an outstanding education. So I think girls' schools in many ways didn't know what the project was on a certain mm-hmm. level. And for those of us who benefited from them, you know, you took one lesson and left the others behind. Yes, yes. <laughs> and being in a community of so many powerful and accomplished women, both for me at Concord and at Bryn Mawr, was life-changing. Yes. So what did your parents think when you announced that you were going to Bryn Mawr? They didn't think much of anything. No one really cared where I went to college. I'm not sure if they even cared if I went to college. It was an obvious next step. My mother affirmed that education was important. She would say that. She'd make sure we bought books and read and so forth. And she wanted to make sure we went to good schools. But I don't think it was very important to them. My whole family had gone to Princeton. If I'd been a boy, I would have been expected to go to Princeton. and. Of course, Princeton did not admit women at the time I went to college. So when I chose Bryn Mawr, maybe they were glad that I wouldn't have to travel so far to college, but it was entirely my choice. I don't remember really any significant input from my parents. But it's also college that then propels you into political activism. What's the first thing you do? that really allows you to know that you can take all of these ideas about justice and injustice and turn them into action as an ordinary citizen? It really came before college. It came when I was still in high school and when the civil rights movement was accelerating. A pretty formative moment for me was in my junior year when Uh, Martin Luther King was speaking at Groton School, not too far away from Concord. And students from Concord were invited to sign up and go hear him. And I had the great privilege of hearing him give this 50-minute address that I know was always very important to me. But lo and behold, some Groton student had entrepreneurially and illegally recorded the thing. And Groton School has this little Uh, tape that is available. And I could listen to the speech and see what, what I heard that made such an impression. And what I heard was really, are you going to be people who don't care? Are you going to be, you're part of this struggle, all of you students here in New England, even though you're not in the South, are you going to be the kind of people who don't take a stand? And very much the message that only a few months later, he delivered in his Birmingham jail letter where he assailed kind of white middle of the road people who said, well, I'm just not going to get involved. I'm not going to take a stand. And so he drew a line in the sand in a way between which side are you on? He didn't put it that way in the language of the civil rights song, 
But that was the message of that speech. And the summer before, I'd been in a Quaker group in Eastern Europe. And so the infusion of Quaker values, liberal to left values, in contrast to the kinds of ideas I'd grown up with, were very powerful. So I think the combination of those two things, and then my decision to continue with a a similar but different Quaker group the following summer, this is the summer before I went to college in the South, summer of 1964, that made it all immediate and very real for me because here were individuals that I was living with that summer who'd been arrested, you know, a teenage African-American boy who had been arrested 11 times or a 10-year-old in one of the black households I was housed in who himself had been to, was very proud of how many times he'd been to jail or being in Birmingham and staying with the families of some of the little girls who'd been killed in the Birmingham bombing, church bombing the summer before. That gave it a, a kind of reality in terms of people's lives. It wasn't something I was reading about in the paper. These people that I knew had been threatened, had taken these risks, were going to take these risks again. And that for me, I think, was the the signal that we need to engage ourselves. We need to take a stand. These are the people who are taking the stand. What are you going to do? So as I started college, I was looking for what kind of stand could I take and what would the expression of it be? And my first weeks of college, I really felt like, what am I doing here? I just come from this very intense summer in the South. And suddenly there I was in the rarefied atmosphere of Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, studying ancient history. And I just kept thinking, what does my education have to do with what I just lived through this summer? And how will I make those things coordinate in a way that leads me to some choices that seem to me meaningful in this world? And here you are, you're a history major, and you are at the same time embedded in a moment in history. You're making history as part of that. Were you at all aware at the time that there was a tradition of Southern white women standing up against racism and fighting back against injustice? I was clueless about that. It wasn't until you know, I read much later, probably in graduate school, that I began to find this tradition and to admire some of these remarkable women. And in a way, it speaks to the kinds of silences you grew up around, that those things weren't known. Well, my youth was very much embedded in a sense of history. But the history that people around me talked about so much was the history of the Civil War, of the Confederacy, of Robert E. Lee, of Stonewall Jackson. We were physically located on ground that Jackson would have moved across as he undertook his Shenandoah Valley campaign. That's where my family's farm was. And when we were little kids, we used to play Civil War. My older brother always made me meet Grant. (laughs) It took me a long time to find out that I'd actually won and he'd lost. He didn't tell me. But that was the history. (laughs) That was part of my childhood. Not a history of opposition or female leadership or resistance to, to the Confederacy. And at Bryn Mawr, you become that female leader. And I found the chapters about Bryn Mawr so interesting because that's the place that I see the Drew Faust 
that I met back in the 1990s beginning to emerge as someone who's asking questions about institutions, balancing the desire for grassroots politics against the power of institutions. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in student government at Bryn Mawr and how that was part of the political project you were engaged in? As I look back on it, I began to see a thread of um, logical progression that perhaps I didn't entirely recognize as I lived through it. But as I arrived at college and looked for what did I want to do to make a difference and how was I going to carry out this mission of taking a stand on, on behalf of justice and progressive causes, the initial area in which I I found myself was naturally that of race. And I went to Selma and cut my midterms in my freshman year and went to the the march at Selma. Uh, And when I came back from that, I'm not sure I fully recognized, but really the civil rights movement had changed. And Selma is often seen as the high watermark of the integrationist civil rights movement and the moment when the emergence of black power creates a very different context for the civil rights activism. For example, John Lewis, who had been head of SNCC, was pushed out because his views were too integrationist and he was not welcoming enough of Black power. So those areas were not going to be ones in which I, as a white woman, was going to find a place. And increasingly, I became active in opposition to the Vietnam War as that became a more central concern. It's a bit ironic. I discovered that as I was doing the work for this book, that the first combat troops, American combat troops, land in Vietnam on the day after Bloody Sunday in Selma in the spring of 1965. So that transition from being focused on civil rights to being focused on Vietnam really characterized the remaining three years in many ways of my college experience. And so going to Washington regularly for those demonstrations, being involved in Vietnam summer, that was a big part of my activism. But I also, as you pointed out, got more and more involved on my own campus. And that was actually entirely consistent. I didn't do it because it was consistent with the Port Huron statement that SDS had issued before I ever joined it. But the Port Huron statement as a statement of commitment to democratic process and democratic change and participatory democracy, identified universities as institutions that would be naturally suited to take the leadership role in instituting this kind of change. Now, SDS, which I was active with in my freshman year and a little bit of my sophomore year, and also active with as it began to embrace anti-war activities, I really abandoned once it started advocating violence. the influence the Quakers had over me, my natural temperament, I did not believe in violence. And so as SDS went in that direction, I left any involvement with SDS. But I think that the statement about universities that SDS had issued earlier still played a role in my thinking. And it also was like, you know, all politics are local, and my local place was Bryn Mawr College. So I became involved in pushing for women's power, independence, the end of, in loco parentis, the end of limitations on what we could do and say and be where we could be, 
And that became a big part of the final years of, of my time at Bryn Mawr. I say in this book that I had a conversation with my daughter at one point when she was going off to college and proudly announced that I, of course, I alone, you know, I was bragging. Lots of people were doing it with me, but I had abolished parietals at Bryn Mawr and she looked blankly at me and said, what are parietals? Well, parietals were rules that said women could not be outside their dormitories after a certain time at night. They could not be in men's rooms. It was meant to preserve sexual purity. And of course, sexual purity was disappearing in face of the pill and the sexual revolution. And we wanted to determine our own lives and where we were going to be when. And so abolishing those was an important goal that we achieved that students now could not believe ever existed. Did you have parietals at Yale when you got there? Nope. No, 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 no. Including, I remember in 1976, walking into my dormitory room and they had just redone the dorm and the fire marshal made them put doors between the entryways and the door flew open and a bunch of guys who were in the room next door walked in and one of them said, oh my God, girls. And <laughs> I thought my mother was going to have a bird. <laughs> But no, we had we had none of those things. And and what were some of the other things that that restricted women? And and I think this is really important for our younger listeners because, of course, this is a women's college um, with a very famous feminist who is in charge, Catherine McBride. And yet, there's still this kind of sense that women need to be preserved for their proper role in the world, which is marriage and motherhood. So, what were some of the other rules that were displaced by the activism of you and your peers. There were rules about clothing and what we could wear and whether we had to wear skirts. It's unimaginable. I don't think I even own a skirt anymore. Um, so that was that was an important part of it. Uh, I guess just in general, what what autonomy we had and how we could determine our own lives. Now, it's important to, to think about where this question of marriage landed in the Bryn Mawr ideology, because there was always a debate or a kind of half-joking, half-serious conversation about one of Bryn Mawr's founding people, M. Carey Thomas, who was the second president, the first woman president. And she was believed to have said, only our failures marry. In other words, marriage was not a goal. She was a lesbian, lived in open lesbian relationships. She was also anti-Semitic, racist, all kinds of other things. And her name has been taken down from the library and other sites at Bryn Mawr. But nevertheless, her influence when I was a, a student there, though she'd been long dead, was profound and in some ways inspiring because she really believed in higher education for women. She went abroad to study because she couldn't study where she wanted to in the United States. And she came back and had this image of women's intellectual preeminence and the possibilities for developing an educational institution that would feature that. Now, we would say only our failures marry was what she said. Others would debate and say, no, no, it's our failures only marry. In other words, you could get married, but you better do something else meaningful as well. But you see, even, even with that, we still were compelled to find ourselves searching for what it was going to be beyond marriage that we were going to do. And I believe that Bryn Mawr stood out a bit in that era from the other women's colleges, at least a number of them, in its insistence on 
this model of the accomplished woman who would not be tied down by marriage. This was a time when many other schools, Wellesley, Smith, offered in their curriculum required courses on how to be a good wife, how to adjust to marriage. Bryn Mawr had none of that, zero. And so it was a bit of an outlier. And I think I appreciated that and was influenced by that, even as it had a very confused message about feminism, confused in the following way. And one of my classmates, Elizabeth Schneider, I don't know if you've ever heard her name. She's a law professor in New York, wrote a book about the failures of Bryn Mawr feminism in our era. The feminism was not about the category woman. It really did not ask us to look at ourselves as part of a category with a broad representation of women from around the world or from all classes or from all races. Instead, it said, you here at Bryn Mawr are so brilliant that it doesn't matter that you have to compete with men, you'll outcompete them. So don't worry, you'll be fine. But it never asked us to look at the broader implications of structural limitations on women's lives. So I think for a lot of us, when we got out of Bryn Mawr, we were astounded to see gender discrimination or to come up against barriers that we had never anticipated because we've been in this kind of cocoon of confidence and nurturing and challenge for four years. And in one way that made us transcend difficulties, in other ways it made us unprepared to face them. Of course, political scientist Joe Freeman said those were exactly the women who became feminists, the ones who realized they couldn't get a credit card, that they couldn't apply for jobs that were for men only in the New York Times, the women who thought they could do everything and then found that there were barriers and that radicalized them. Yes. Yeah. Drew, I wish we had forever because I'm still fascinated by how this Mm -hmm. young woman who graduates from Bryn Mawr, maybe you'll give us another volume at some point, then leaps to, (laughs) Drew is shaking her head. Um, She becomes the first woman president of Harvard. But this book is also a story about the middle of the 20th century. And I'm wondering, why should our listeners read this book now? I want people to read this book for two fundamental reasons. One is I want readers to understand how awful the 1950s were and to understand some of the texture of that awfulness in the ways it constrained certain members of the population, women, African-Americans among the most constrained, but it distorted the lives of everyone. So I feel that it's important for people to understand that because we seem to be marching as fast as we can back into some of those realities, overturning what I had thought unchangeable progress for women, for African-Americans. We've overturned affirmative action now. We've overturned Roe. We're changing the understanding of Black history that we all struggled to bring about changes to in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So I had assumed that life was just one direct trajectory of progress, escaping from the itchy clothing I wore as a little child into a different world. But it's not. And I want people to understand that we need to be very vigilant and active to make sure we don't find ourselves back there again. The second reason 
I would like people to read this book. And this sounds almost contradictory, but I want people to understand that despite what I've just said, change has happened, that we are not living in the 1950s at the moment. And I find that there are many individuals who are quite disheartened about our country. And historians, for example, who argue that essentially nothing has changed since the Civil War, that emancipation wasn't really emancipation because it was followed by Jim Crow and convict lease and segregation and lynching and then by incarceration in our own lifetimes so that one in three black men in America today can expect to be jailed at some time during his lifetime. This is terrible. We've not made enough progress. But I wanted people to understand that we have made progress, that the life I led as a small child is not familiar to people today. I wanted people to understand why it seems foreign and strange, because I want people to understand that change has happened and it can happen again, and that people have made it happen. And so it depends on us. We shouldn't be disheartened. We should be committed to making sure that we don't go back to where we were and that we do recognize change is our responsibility and we take on that responsibility. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.